theyeshiva.net. So the Mishnah in Tractate Megillah quotes an argument between some of the greatest sages how much of the Megillah should be read on Purim. Sages have obligated the Jewish people to commemorate the story of Purim each year annually. And one of the ways is by reading the Megillah, by reading the story both at night and once again during the day of Purim. Chayev Adam Bayoim at night and by day. The question, though, that has risen was how much of the Megillah must be read? And there are different opinions of the Tanayim because some say you begin with Ish Yehudi Haya the story of Mardachai, there was a Jew in Shushan Abira, and he was related to Esther. And some say, Acher Advarim Ha'ela Gidal, Hamelech Achashverish is Haman. You begin with the story of Achashverish promoting Haman as his second in command, as the viceroy, as the prime minister. So the first opinion is you begin with the story of Mardachai, Tokvashal Mardachai. The other opinion is Tukfa Shal Haman. You begin with the story of Haman. Third opinion, You begin with the actual miracle story, the night when Achashverosh suffered insomnia and couldn't sleep. And he summoned his servants, who then read from the diary, Sefer Azachrinus, of what happened, which evolved into the whole miracle of Mardachai being taken around by Haman through the streets of Shushan, etc., etc. That's what's relevant to the story. And then there's the view of Reb Meir, who says, no, you have to read from the beginning of the story of Ahibe Me'ach the whole Megillah from the beginning to the end, all the ten chapters from the beginning of Ahashverish, and that indeed is the verdict that has been embraced by Halacha, by Jewish law, that the fulfillment of the mitzvah of reading and listening to the Megillah is when you read the entire Megillah from beginning to end. There is a reason that many of the sages disagree with this, because what they felt is that what we're celebrating is not Persian history. What we're commemorating is not the entire evolution of how the Persian Empire evolved and developed. I mean, if you want to dedicate time to read it and study it, you can go back to Achashverosh's birth, to Vashti's birth. Vashti came from a very prominent lineage of Babylonian emperors. And we can go back further and further. The fact that Achashverosh threw a party for 187 days, and all of the decorations of the party and everything that happened at the party, it's certainly an interesting story. It's a prelude to the whole development of what happened subsequently. Vashti is uh, removed from her throne. She is taken down, and then Achashverosh needs a new queen, so he finds Esther, but that is only indirectly related to the story. And therefore, many of the Tanoim feel otherwise. They feel the beginning of the story is Mordechai. Or the beginning of the story is Haman, the great anti-Semite of the time, is promoted to power. That's how the actual decree develops. He can't stand Mordechai. He loathes Mordechai. He despises Mordechai. And he ultimately despises every Jew. Or some say, why do we have to focus on the negative? Let's focus on the positive story. The night that Achashverosh couldn't sleep and everything turned around from tragedy to triumph, from despair to exhilarating joy. These views actually make sense. It's Purim, so we're celebrating the story of Purim. But the halacha is not like that. The halacha is that kairi is kula. That one cannot fulfill the mitzvah of the Megillah if they don't know 
the opening chapter. And what's the opening chapter? The opening chapter seems completely not related directly to the Purim story. It's actually a chapter about Achashverosh, his Meshagasen, his idiosyncrasies. The man was a true party animal. Some people know how to party weekend. Some people know how to party for a week. I don't know many people who know how to feast for 187 days straight. That's a significant amount of time. You can imagine the hangover after 187 days. And this wasn't a simple party with a few ragalach and babkas. This was a party, as the Megillah describes in detail. Inebriation, intoxication. The greatest delicacies designed stupendously, all of the intricacies, the exquisiteness of it, both in terms of uh, exterior design and interior design, as the Megillah describes, types of drinks and the vessels and the goblets, the abundance and the extravagant measures that Achashverosh took in order to really throw not just the party of a lifetime, but the party of a century, or maybe a millennium, or as it seems, maybe millennia, this was his point. So yes, it's an interesting story, no question. The story ultimately leads at the end, Kashveder is being drunk and summoning his wife, the queen, who refuses to come, and as a result of that, she is removed, and he goes into a depression, and now they're looking for a new queen, and ultimately Esther is chosen, which will, of course, become a major part of that story. But if so, we can already go back further. How did Vashti come to the palace? How did Achashverosh get to the crown? Get the crown? Where was Haman before? And the answer is, these are all interesting questions, but since they're not directly related to the story, even though every story evolves from a previous story, which evolves from a previous story, every narrative has an antecedent, which has an antecedent, an antecedent, etc. But nonetheless, at some point, you just have to uh, solidify your narrative, and present that which you want to present. And yet, the halacha is, and the way the Megillah was written is, that the first chapter, describing in detail the feast of Achashverosh, which as we said is not directly related to the story in any way, even though it of course leads to that which will lead, to that which will lead, to that which will lead to the story. This is the opening chapter of the Megillah, one of the Svarim of the Tanakh, the 24 books of Tanakh, Kishmi HaKadosh. And as we said, the Halach is, you have to read this chapter. Kairi Kulo, this chapter, chapter 2, all the way from 1 to 10. What is the significance of this? When it comes to Purim, there's an interesting law that we don't have the rest of the year. The Gemara says in Mesrech the Megillah, page 7, Davzayin, Chayiv Inish L'Besume B'Purya, Adela Yada Beinar Haman L'Baruch Mardechai. Rav said that a person is obligated to Lebesume, as Rashi says, to become inebriated on Purim to the point that he does not know the difference between cursed as Haman and blessed as Mardachai. Which at first glance, it seems like a very strange halacha. Generally, the Torah does not believe in people losing their das, losing their sense of awareness, of clarity, of sobriety. In fact, Intoxication of any form is seen in Judaism generally as repulsive, as abominable, as something detestable and undesirable. Because I'll say, shikir asr lispalel, somebody who's inebriated, is not let a daven, shasui, somebody who's drunk, is not somebody even, not even drunk, somebody who drank a little too much, is not let to enter into the Beis HaMikdash. One of the sins of Nadav and Avi, one of the explanations is 
that Suya Yaya Nichnasu Lamikdash, Aaron's children went in, inebriated into the Mishkan and the sanctuary, and as a result of that, they forfeited their life, which is why right after their tragic passing, Hashem tells Aaron, Yayin Vishekhar al Tasht. Do not drink when you're coming into the sanctuary. Similarly, when you go to a king, you don't come drunk. When you stand to daven or make a brachi, you're not allowed to do it when you're drunk. Generally, das is a human gift, awareness, presence of mind, sobriety, conscientiousness. You're alert, you're present. You know what is going on. You can distinguish. We spoke a few weeks ago, the story of the two bulls, if you remember, Elio Anavi's two oxen. And we explained the idea that Yerushalmi says, Im ein das, without das, there can't be discrimination, there can't be havdalah, there can't be separation, segregation. One cannot discriminate between what is good and what is worthless, what is productive, what is destructive, what is a value and what is an addiction, what is a true, meaningful pursuit and what is just a pain number. Without das, one can easily fall into mindless traps based on instinct, habit, trauma, proclivities that are innate. One does not have the awareness that allows you to make real choices. And this truth is upheld throughout the year, with one exception, Ampurim. On Purim, we ask you go to a place of loyada, a lack of das, an absence. Loyada, you don't know. And what don't you know? You don't know the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mardachai. Which is even more strange. Why are we celebrating on Purim if we don't know the difference between Christus Haman and Baruch Mardachah? If you ask a person, why are you feasting on Purim? The answer is, Haman was defeated and the Jewish people were saved. So the very essence, the nucleus, the very foundation of the celebration is to celebrate the fact that Haman, the vicious anti-Semite of the day, experienced defeat. He was hung, his children were hung, and his edict was not canceled, but at least the Jewish people were allowed to act in self-defense for all of the enemies who came to kill them on that fateful day, the 13th of Adar, designated or chosen through a lottery by Haman as the day of extermination. So why am I feasting on Purim? To celebrate the salvation of my people, and the defeat of the Hitler of the time, Haman. Now you tell me, how should you feast? You should feast to the point that you don't know the difference between Haman and Mardukai. Really? If you don't know the difference between Haman and Mardukai, why are you partying? If Haman and Mardukai are on equal footing, so what's the celebration? The whole celebration is because there's a difference between Mardukai and Haman. What would be then the rationale? Maybe that's a strange word to use when we're talking about Adalayada. But what would be the motivation? What would be the soul behind this halacha? Behind the statement of Rava, who tells us that chayav inish lebesume bepuria meila ad loyada until you reach a place of loyada. I don't know. 
between cursed is Haman and Baruch Mordechai. Really? If you don't know, why are you feasting? If you really don't know, then you're undermining the very justification to be happy today, to celebrate today. It's just another day, a regular day, if Haman and Mordechai are equal footing. And generally, what does it even mean that Yiddishkeit, the Gemara is, is advocating a state in which you're not aware of the differences between these two people? Isn't that the basis of civilization? To know the difference between a character like Mordechai and a character like Haman? The moment there is no demarcation, there's no difference between Mordechai and Haman, aren't we in a very dangerous state? The foundation of life is to be able to choose between good and evil, between sadism and kindness, between barbarity and refinement, between brutality and compassion. Dafgan Purim, which celebrates the defeat of evil, and the rescue, the salvation of the good and the innocent, who were defenseless, innocent people. They didn't do anything to deserve annihilation by the hands of Haman. This day you want me to celebrate by not knowing the difference between Ur Haman and Baruch Mardechai. Now there are those who don't understand the soul of Purim, and they just think it's like Lahavdul this Halloween. Just a day of wildness and uh, frivolousness. It's like one day a year where we remove the, you know, the handcuffs and we say, just go wild. But the truth is, the Zohar says that Yoyma Kippurim is called Yoyma Kippurim because it's Kippurim. Purim and Yom Kippur, the Zohar says, are the most two, two most similar days in the year. <laughs> Which is very strange. Because any Jew who knows anything about the Jewish calendar, if I would ask you which two days are the most diametrically opposed in the Jewish calendar, it would be Purim versus Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur nobody eats, nobody drinks, nobody runs around the streets making the Chmeshuga, nobody dresses up. People are somber, serious, hungry, thirsty, introspective. They sit in shul and daven or say Tehillim or learn or, or just complain about uh, the lack of water whatever the situation on Yom Kippur is, or take care of children, whatever the situation, it's a very serious day, we're compared to angels, people are dressed in white, etc. Purim is the day that seems frivolous, and less boundaries, and sometimes no boundaries, and no inhibitions, and it's a day where you have to eat, and you have to drink, and you have to feast, and the mitzvahs of the day all revolve around food, the opposite of Yom Kippur. How do you fulfill the mitzvahs of Purim? Feasting, eating, drinking, mashloyach sending food, matanas love, yoinim, giving money to the poor. Seems opposite of Yom Kippur. And yet, the Zoyer says, Purim al shem yoim hakipurim iskirias. Expression in Tikkuni Zoyer. Purim was named so because of yoim hakipurim. And as it says in Svarim, it's actually the other way around. Yoim hakipurim means it's like Purim. So which one is greater? You're comparing Yom Kippur to Purim. Yom HaKippurim. With a Chafadim. Yom Kippur means like, similar. In other words, Purim is the paradigm, is the foundation, and Yom HaKippurim is Kippurim, which is even more strange. Because Yom Kippur is a biblical holiday, an ancient holiday from the time of Har Sinai. Purim is a rabbinic holiday that was added by the prophets and the sages after the event, the times of Mordechai and Esther, which was at the end of the Babylonian exile, the first era of the beginning of the, the genesis of the Second Temple era, much later in Jewish history. 
So obviously the name Yom Kippurim comes first chronologically. But in theme, and when you're talking about the thematic, from the, a thematic perspective, from a thematic vantage point, Yom HaKippurim, there's even a greatness in Purim that doesn't exist in Yom Kippur. Which means if Yom Kippur is a serious day, Purim is even more serious day. But seriousness in Judaism does not necessarily mean uh, uh, despondency. Sometimes we make the mistake of confusing seriousness with a certain sense of fakvechkeit, of, of being despondent, of melancholy, a little form of, of, of sadness, and joy and openness with frivolousness and anarchy. But that's not the case. Purim in many ways is more serious even than Yom Kippur. But the seriousness of Purim is expressed through the venues of Purim. But this has to be understood. What is this meaning of losing das, and especially between Ur Rahman and Baruch Mardachai, the basis of civilization and the basis of Purim? The whole story of Purim is about Ur Rahman and Baruch Mardachai. If not, the Jews wouldn't celebrate. If Haman wasn't cursed and Mardachai didn't come out blessed, there was no reason to celebrate. There's something else about Purim, and that is when the sages had to choose what should be the mitzvahs for Purim. Hanukkah, we light candles. We say halal. Pesach, the Torah says to eat matzah, eat marer. The sages say to recline, drink four cups of wine. Sukkah, the Torah says to eat in a sukkah. Keep a sukkah Every Yom Tif has its unique mitzvahs. Its unique rituals and commandments through which we tune in and access the divine energy of this Yom Tif. When they had to choose, when it came to Purim, what should be the mitzvahs of the day? There's four mitzvahs. Reading the Megillah, which is understood. Reading the Megillah allows us to know the story, to remember the story, to know what we're celebrating. That's number one. And then there is three mitzvahs that are very unique. The first is Mishta V'Simcha. On Purim there's an obligation, a mitzvah, to have a feast. To sit and wash and have a meal and eat and drink and rejoice in that meal. It's called Mishta V'Simcha. This is one of the actual mitzvahs of Purim. On the day of Purim to have a feast, as you know. Then there is another mitzvah connected to gifts, to food, which is Mishlayach Manes Ishlareyu, to actually send food to somebody else. So you're not only eating yourself, you're also sending food to another person. More food or more drinks. Food or drinks, Mishlayach Manes, two types of, 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 of uh, edible substances to at least one friend, Ishlareyu. And then there's Matanas Lav which is not food, it's money to the, to the poor. It doesn't have to be food, it could be anything that's worth money, including money, of course, itself, with which the poor person could go purchase whatever he or she wants or needs. And, of course, the basic staple of a person's needs, especially when they're suffering from desperate poverty, is the first thing a person needs is food. A person can't survive much without food or drinks. This means that most of the mitzvahs of Purim revolve around eating, drinking, feasting. Why did they choose it to be that way? For example, Hanukkah, that's not part of Hanukkah. True, we have a minik to have Hanukkah parties and Hanukkah meals and family get-togethers. It's not one of the mitzvahs of Hanukkah. The poiskim debate, if, it's, if Hanukkah meals are called a Sudas mitzvah, not called a Sudas mitzvah, it's a discussion. Purim, it's not a discussion. Part of the essential celebration of Purim is the eating and the drinking and the feasting. Mishta v'simcha. The Megillah says that they made it. They made it. Yimei, they established them as Yimei Mishta v'simcha. Days of feasting and joy. 
So the rabbis explain, one explanation is, because Haman was defeated during a party. Esther famously orchestrated two mishtas, two parties, two feasts. And during those feasts, Achashverosh had what to drink, and Haman had to drink. And during the second party, that's when Esther revealed to Achashverosh who she is, that she's Jewish. She pointed an accusing finger, jacques, on Haman, for our French contingency here. She, she pointed that finger of accusation on Haman, Ish Tsarva Oyev Haman who was attempting to annihilate my people. Achashverosh becomes furious, and ultimately, as a result, Haman is executed. Now, the truth is, that is not what ultimately saves the Jewish people, because Haman was gone. So, say, during the Second World War, Himmler or Eichmann or Mengele would have been taken down, but the apparatus of the Holocaust continues. Haman's decree was still in effect. People don't realize Haman was executed. But nothing changed. There was a decree that on the 13th day of other 11 months from now, the regime, the empire, and every citizen has a right and obligation to kill out every Jew. That wasn't changed. And Esther and Mordechai couldn't get the king to change that. What he did was, he issued forth a second edict allowing the Jews to defend themselves, which they did. On the 13th of other, the day when they would have just been victims, they fought back, and they fought back successfully, and ferociously, and defeated all those who came to kill them. When you read at the end of the Megillah about the bloody wars, people get very uncomfortable by it, which is understandable because it was very violent and bloody, but they often fail to understand that the Jews did not go out to kill anybody. It was completely a war of self-defense because the decree remained in place even after Haman was killed. Every Jew, they had permission to attack and kill every Jewish man and woman and child, and those who hated Jews went to do it. What happened was Achashverosh gave them the right to fight back. And obviously the government would not assist, the troops, the royal troops would not assist the murderers. So it was Mamash, a war of self-defense, and whoever was killed was only because they came to kill Habala Hargach, Hashkem Lahargach, just an important historic comment when you read the Megillah. So what happens here is Haman was killed during a feast. So the circumstances were around the feast. Why, however, does that become the central, or one of the most central features of Purim? The Mishtav Simcha, even though the party is great, we're not complaining, but the fact that Esther did it during the Mishtav seems like the backdrop, the circumstance. Why did they feel that must become the feature that we are to associate with the mitzvah of Purim, and even the other mitzvahs are somehow connected to food and feasting and drinking, like Mishloyach Manas, Matanas, and even reading the Megillah, which tells us about the feast and the mitzvah to do the feast. When Mordechai hears about the decree that the Jewish people are going to be annihilated, he sends a message to Esther. And he wants Esther to go plead with her husband, she's the first lady after all, to go plead with the king, the monarch of Persia, Achashverosh, to cancel this vicious edict against her people. First, Esther tries to explain to Mordechai through a messenger that this is not practical. Her husband is a tyrant, he's a dictator. She hasn't been summoned to him for 30 days. If you go into his chamber without permission, you come out with a head shorter. So she can go in to plead with him, but all that might happen is she will be executed. 
so she won't be alive and no Jew will be alive. Mordechai sends back a very intense message to Esther, which motivates her and inspires her. We discussed it at length another, another year at Purim. It's on the yeshiva.net, the story of how Mordechai inspired Esther to go. I think last year, two years ago, three years ago. And Esther agrees. The words that she uses when she agrees is after Mordechai sends her the message, and I'm going to quote from the Megillah, Esther responds. She doesn't say, I'm going to go. She says, You would think Mordechai is begging her to go. She says, I can't, I'm going to be killed. Mordechai says, you have to do this. This is why you became a queen. You and your family will be lost. The Jews will be saved even if you don't go, but you will lose your opportunity. So we would think Esther would say, okay, I'm going to go. Esther suddenly changes the subject. She says, I'm asking you to go gather Leich Knoises Kola Yehudim on Emtsoyim Gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan. Hanim Tsoyim. Who are present in Shushan. And fast. Fast on me. Fast, don't eat and don't drink for three days. Night and day. I will also fast with my girls. And then, thus, I shall come to the king. Laichadas means not according to the rules. I will be breaking and violating das. Das means the religion is called a das, the rules, the, the norm, the ways it's done, the way things are done. I will come to the king loikados, not according to the law, because according to the law, legally I'm not allowed to enter, and if I enter, I may be jeopardizing my head, my life. But I will come ashaloichados. V'chasher avadati avadati. And as I have perished, I will perish. Which as Rashi says, ashaloi chados means... There is no permission to go into the king if you weren't summoned. Or as Rashi gives another explanation, this will be the first time I will voluntarily go into the king. Never before has Esther been with Achashverosh voluntarily. She was taken to the king. She did not choose to be his queen. She was forced to be his queen. And therefore, if she's not being summoned, isn't that wonderful for a Jewish young woman? But this time is the first time that Esther will go in. Not according to the law. As Rashi says, If I'm going to my death sentence, I'm going to my death sentence. Or as Rashi again brings the Medrash, that since I'm going in willingly, everything will change in terms of the status of Esther. Which is a whole separate discussion. It's not for now. So what does Esther say? The first thing, I want you to gather all the Jews in Shushan and fast for three days in there. Then I'm going to come to the king. Mordechai never asked her to do that. Mordechai was speaking to the queen of the Persian Empire. And he says, your husband is the king. All I'm asking you is go in and speak to him. That's what Mordechai says. Esther now sends a message back to Mordechai telling Mordechai what to do. And completely out of her realm. Esther wasn't the one who's gathering the Jews. Mordechai was the leader of the Sanhedrin, meaning he was considered the spiritual leader of the Jewish people at the time. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of the Jewish people, the most central body of Jewish leadership that both had the legal and political and spiritual 
presence and authority. These were the 70 members of the Supreme Court, 71 members, generation after generation, since Moshe Rabbeinu's generation. Each one had to be ordained by a master who was ordained by a previous master, by his predecessor, all the way back to Yehoshua, who was ordained by Moshe. So this was an unbroken chain of Messiah of tradition that was extremely powerful and authoritative and yielded tremendous influence because of the nature of this group. Mardechai was considered the leader of the Sanhedrin. Mardechai was the one who was the backbone of Esther throughout the time, telling her what to do. The Megillah says what Mardechai said she did. Besides at this moment, at this moment, she listened to Mardechai, she's going to go to the king, but before she says, I'm going to go, I'm going to tell you what to do. I want you to go and do something else. Gather all the Jews in Shushan, Fast for me three days and three nights. I will also fast. And then I will go to the king, Ashaloi Chadas. One of the ways in which Torah is interpreted, we say every morning, There's 13 formulas. They're called methodologies. Methodology. The methodology that Moshe gave the Jewish people of how to interpret Torah is comprised of 13 principles. It's called 13 formulas. 13 ways, 13 principles that we use for deduction, elaboration, explanation, and application of the constitution of Torah Shabbat Shabbat. The first one is called Kalva Chaymer. The second one is called Gzeira Shava. The 13 attributes, by the way, the Zoyar says, parallel the Yudgimel Midas Harachamim, the 13 attributes of compassion are reflected in the 13 formulas to which Torah is interpreted. The Shalah says they also parallel the 13 animamins, the 13 principles, fundamentals of faith, that the Rambam establishes, also parallel these 13 principles. The second one is Gzeirishava. Gzeirishava. What is Gzeirishava? Gzeirishava means to cut. Ligzor. Ligoizir yamsof ligzorim. Gzeirishava means to cut. Which is also what a decree means, a gzeri, you cut like an edict. Sharp and cut, this is the verdict. Shava means identical, like lahashvos, right? Things are similar, it's called, you say, shavim, they're similar, they're identical. Gzeri, shava, cut and compare. What does this mean? In Torah, every word is precise. If you have one halacha, you have another halacha, they're not connected. But the Torah employs the same term by each. So this gives room for us to, let's call it in contemporary language, copy-paste. You know what copy-paste is? Copy-paste is, I have a word here, and I want to use the same word somewhere else, in another page of my article, or a whole sentence. So instead of rewriting the sentence, what do I do? I copy-paste. Sometimes you cut and paste, sometimes you copy and paste. Cut and paste means you remove it from the first source and you put it in the second source. Copy, paste, I'm giving you now a Microsoft Word uh, tutorial, very important. Copy, paste is, (laughs) copy, paste is, you copy the word and it stays there and you paste it somewhere else. Gzeri Shava is copy, paste. The Torah uses a term here, the same term the Torah uses elsewhere, why is the same term used in both cases? The answer is the Torah wants you to copy, paste, apply the law of this place also to this place. This is a very important principle. I'll give you an example for this without elaborating much. 
There are three methods in halacha through which a Jewish couple can get married. One is a document. One is intimacy. But the one that everybody uses today is what? A ring. The chas and the groom places a ring on the finger of his bride of the Kali. He says, By giving her something of value. Now, it doesn't really have to be a ring. It just has to be something that's worth money. Although the tradition and the custom is to use a ring for different reasons which are beyond the parameters of this class. So he betrothes her through money. And he gives her that ring, which is obviously must be something of value, which is, if you remember under the chuppah, you may have had a rabbi who was showing everybody the ring. Is it worth money? Is it, how much do you think it's worth? Is it worth a pruta? Is it not worth a pruta? It has to be of monetary value. And he gives it to his wife, to his kala, and they become married. Where do we know this from? The Torah speaks about marriage, but it doesn't say you could do it through money. The other method says, but it doesn't say through money. The answer is copy-paste. The word that the Torah uses for marriage is a man shall take. How do you take? How do you take? What do you mean you take? So we have another word, another time the word kich is used. It's quite an interesting juxtaposition. It seems so different. And that is when Avram Avinu is trying to find a place for his wife after her passing for burial. And he tells Ephraim, Nasati kesef kach mimeni. I have given you the money, take it from me. So we compare the kach and the kach. Same term. Copy, paste. There it's with money. Here it can also be with money. Kicha, kicha, gzereshava. There's two times in the Megillah that there's a word used. Hanim tsayim. Those who are present. Those who are found. Matsui, like Metziah, means to find. Loyi Matsui, you shouldn't be found. Matsui means found, present. Hanim tsayim, those who are present. The first time, the one time is when Esther tells Mardukai, he could have said, You could say, go gather all the Jews in New York. Go gather all the Jews in Muncie. Gather all the Jews in America. You could say that. Gather all the Jews in the world. It's very clear. Go gather all the Jews in Shushan. She adds the word, They're found in Shushan. When they're found, where are they hiding in closets? When they're found in Shushan, you have to go search for them. Maybe some are hiding in closets after what happened, I don't know. Although there was a whole year till the decree would happen. What's this Hanim Tsoyim B'Shushan? Comes this Vasemis and he says, it's to make a Gzei It's our copy and paste principle. One more place it says Hanim Tsoyim. And that is in the opening chapter of the Megillah. Achashverish is now a king for three years. And the third year... After three years of reigning, 127 provinces, what happens? He makes a feast for his ministers, for his servants, for his troops, for all of the governors throughout the country. He wants to display his wealth, his glory, his royalty for 180 days. When 180 days pass, which means almost a half a year, almost six months have passed, 180 days. So this is a party that went for six months. You can imagine what the economy looked like after that. I guess everybody else was working. The king made another party for the entire nation 
who were found, who were present in Shushan Abir. No matter if they were older or younger, if they were prominent or simpletons, great men or women of valor, aristocrats or peasants, everybody was invited to a party for seven days. In the courtyard, the garden, and the palace, the mansion of the king. And here the Megillah goes out on a limb to describe the intricacies of the party, the design, the designers who were brought in, Chur, Karpas, Tcheles, Chevle, Butz, Argomon, the types of beds, the types of linen, the types of floor, the types of tiles, types of materials and fabrics, even the nature of the goblets that were used, and it wasn't one size, Kalim, Kalim, Shainim, different sizes, and all, of course, of pure gold, and endless wine, Varsia, Chados, Einoines, there was endless drinking and nobody was forced. The Melech said, everybody does what they want at this party. And Vashti also makes her party. On the seventh day, the king is drunk. He wants Vashti to come with her crown. As he says, he wants to show off her beauty. And Vashti refuses to come. And the rest, as they say, is history. Or in this case, her story. Pun intended. What's the expression? It could have said, Asa Melech, Asa, after, after the 180 days, the king made the whole nation in Shushan. We know that they're in Shushan. You don't have to say they're found in Shushan. They're present in Shushan. Another Hanim Tsayim. Comes this Vashemes and Purim, I think the year Tophrey Shlam at Zion, he says, Hanim Tsayim, Hanim Tsayim, there's a Gzairish Shavah. These two words are here in the Megillah to create what we call a juxtaposition, to create a similarity, to be able to connect the two, even though they seem completely dissimilar. This is the party that he's making for the nation in Shushan, and this is what Esther is asking Mordechai to gather all of the Jews who are in Shushan. And it's the exact opposite. Here they're feasting. They're partying, they're drinking abundantly. And Nachashverer says, no limits. Everybody does and gets whatever they want at this party. And here, the Jewish people are fasting for three days and three nights. The antithesis of it. And by the way, this explains a very strange phenomenon. I'm not going to elaborate on this. Vashti refuses to listen to the king, and Achashverosh summons a whole committee and a whole conference what to do, and the Mepharshim say in the ancient times somebody didn't listen to the king, it was treason, what was the question? The reason it was a question is because Achashverosh himself said, he wanted everybody should do whatever they want. So the question is, does that include also the ability to say no to the king or not? So this was the debate. And that's why Memuchan came up with the whole idea that once you allow this to happen, there's going to be anarchy, and in every home there's going to be a feminist revolt thousands of years before feminism, and therefore you have to be careful with your way, the way if you let Vashti off the hook. This was Memuchan, who we know, the martyr says, was Haman's first idea about how to treat your wife. What, what's the significance of the two Hanim Tsayims. What's the significance of the two Hanim Tsayims? So the Gemara says in Maseches Megillah that the students asked Rabbi Shimon Bar what happened in that generation? And the Shimon Bar said that the Jewish people is Nenu Russia. At this feast, where Achashvedish invited everybody in Shushan, 
the Jews obviously were eager to go as well. They went and they enjoyed the feast of the rush. And the Gemara says, Achashverosh even dressed up with the priestly garments. He said the Beis Hamikdash won't be rebuilt. It's been 70 years since exile. They're never going back. He used the kalim of the Beis Hamikdash, the vessels of the Beis Hamikdash, kalim, kalim, shainim. He took out the priestly garments of the Beis Hamikdash and he was using the vessels that were actually used in the first Beis Hamikdash that he inherited as the Persian Empire, which defeated Babylonia, which destroyed the first Beis Hamikdash. And the Jewish people who felt accepted and that for once embraced by the king and by the White House of Shushan Abira, Nenu Misudasai. They enjoyed, they quelled, they became part and parcel of the feast of Achashvedish of Shirim Bayechai. He says, Nenu Misudasa They enjoyed, they ate, they drank, and they feasted at the meal of. That wicked person, Achashverosh, who, as the Gemara says, did not hate Jews any less than Haman. The question is if he hated them more than Haman or he hated them equally as Haman or somewhere like Haman. But as the Gemara puts it, And here something amazingly happens. And this is pointed out even before this Fasem is by the Chsam Seifer. And the Chsam Seifer says a very powerful point. He says, when you look at the Megillah, the entire story was completely dressed up in nature, which is one of the reasons we get dressed up on Purim, because our true faces become disguised, because the true face of the story was disguised. Esther also means disguise. Haster, aster, pane Why was it disguised? Because if you were a newspaper and you reported the story, every part of the story seemed very natural. Cheshveresh had a party. Got into a fight with his wife. He killed her. Okay. He's depressed. I mean, okay, at those times it was tyrants were tyrants. And uh, at best he had a benevolent dictator. He usually had a Meshuggah dictator. And he's depressed and he gets a new wife. Happens to be a Jewish girl. Nobody knows. Mordechai reports an assassination attempt. Haman becomes a prime minister. And all this is happening years apart. And then when Haman makes a decree... And ultimately, Esther intervenes. Everything seems natural here. Seas are not splitting. Water is not turning into blood. Water is not flowing from a rock. Manna is not falling from heaven. These are all political maneuvers. Mordechai turns to the first lady and says, try to influence him. She throws a party. Throws another party. Thank God he suffers from insomnia. Mordechai is in the right place at the right time. Haman is in the wrong place in the right time. Mordechai gets rewarded, Esther makes a feast, she sees her husband is drunk, and he's very attracted to her, and she uses her charm and charisma, and she manipulates him a little bit in his inebriation, and she tells him the plan, she gets Haman executed, now she positions it all in a brilliant way. At first glance, these are all what you call great, great political shrewd maneuvers on behalf of the Jewish people who did have some great fortune in the fact that Esther ended up in the palace and Mordechai reported an assassination attempt to Achashverosh. So this is what we call a neis hamalubash b'teva. A miracle, but completely enclosed in nature and you didn't see it happening as it was happening because it took many years. It's a story that spans, the Megillah is a story that spans more than a decade, 12 years. So later you could connect the strings, but initially you're not. Some cipher says the greatest miracle of Purim is the first chapter. 
Why the first chapter? Because the rest of the story, you can actually interpret it as nature. And it happens to be that Achashverosh was spineless. The Gemara says he was a hafchefachan, which means he was spineless. Today he was like this, tomorrow he was like this. He was a paranoid person. He wasn't a strong person with a spine. He had mood swings. He was up and down. He was on top of the, he was on top of the world and in the abyss. So today he's with Haman, tomorrow he's with Esther. So that's all explained in terms of nature. The Chsam Seifer says the one unique moment in the Megillah that's extraordinary is the first chapter. What happens in the first chapter is there's a party for 187 days. Nothing, nothing out of the ordinary happened. Everything was fine. 187 days this king hulet and trinked. He's drunk and stoned and smashed and inebriated. Nothing out of the ordinary happens. The last day, the last day, it's about to end, the last day, he gets drunk and he decides today Vashti has to appear. And as the Gemara says, he didn't just want her to appear, he wanted her to appear without any cloaks. And that's why Vashti refuses with different interpretations. Why? The Megillah doesn't say explicitly why she refused, but she refused. Some want to explain she refused in order to demonstrate her independence, her autonomy. She sent him a message that he actually, he owes her for the crown. He's in debt to her because she's really the royal descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, etc. Achashverosh Sachakal was in charge of the horse stable in the Babylonian Empire and ultimately he took over. So it wasn't just she refused, she insulted him, she denigrated him. But what happened, this all happens on the last day. Achashverosh had a close relationship with Vashti. That's why he got depressed after she was gone. But yet as a result of this, in this moment of insanity and anger and impulsiveness, this impetuous nature takes over and he executes his own spouse. And as a result of that, as the Megillah describes afterwards, Zohar is Vashti. He remembers Vashti. And it's not easy. And they said you need somebody new. At the end of the story, we understand what happened. If this moment would have not taken place, Esther would have never been brought to the palace. Vashti would have remained the queen. If Esther would have not been brought to the palace, there's no way naturally the Jewish people could have been saved. It all happened through Esther, through her wisdom, through her initiative, through her sacrifice. The entire salvation happened through Esther. Even though Mordechai was the impetus who initially inspired her. But she's the one who did it. Esther had to be in the palace. Without Esther being in the palace, it could never happen. So when Vashti is taken away and executed at that seventh day, the last day of the party, when Achashverosh loses it, 187 days he didn't lose it, 186 days he didn't lose it, the last day the man lost it for whatever reason. Why? So that Vashti should be summoned, she should refuse. And ultimately she's... Not only demoted, the, the, the Megillah doesn't say clearly, but Vashti is executed, even though the Megillah doesn't use those words. The Megillah just says Vashti shouldn't be here anymore. And Esther is taken, is, is brought into the palace. Where were the Jewish people at that time, during this party? Where were the Jewish people at that time? The Jewish people at that time were spiritually speaking, at least most of them, or many of them, the Jews in Shushan, as the Gemara says, Ishtachavu Lutzelem. They bowed to idolatry. They bowed to Haman later. They were part of the Sudha of Oisei Russia. In other words, many of them, most of them, were completely alienated from their own Jewishness. And we understand what happened. Achashverosh gave them freedom. He invited them to the Sudha. There was new opportunity. And many of the Jews surrendered to that charm 
to that incredible invitation of Ahasuerus, and they lost touch with their own core, with their own spiritual identity, their history, their heritage, their blood, their faith, their God, and so forth. And being this in this meal became part of that. It became the symbol of it. So I could understand that at this party, Hashem decides that Ahasuerus should get drunk and execute Vashti. Why? Because right now he's planning the salvation of the Jewish people. What does this mean? This means that even in a state when spiritually they were apparently in such a low state to the point that this decree can happen because of the state, in this state itself, in this first chapter, the master of the world is preparing the salvation of the children. And he brings on this, the Gemara says in Kedushan, there's an argument between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Meir when Jews are called children. Rabbi Yehuda says when they behave like children. Rabbi Meir says, ben kachu, ben bonum, You're always called children. And the Gemara brings four verses to support Rabbi Meir's view. And one of them is, bonim Even when you're corrupt and you serve idolatry, you're still called my children. So the Samsaifa says, this we see in the first chapter of the Megillah. That the downfall of the decree of Haman, the downfall of Haman, happens when the moment Vashti is executed in this chapter, when the Jewish people are completely alienated from their Judaism, and they're even in a state that this edict is soon going to happen because of this alienation. Nonetheless, he's already preparing the stage for them to be saved because they're his children. And because they're children, children always remain children. So that's the greatest, some services, that's the greatest moment of the Megillah, the first chapter of the Megillah. Esther knows this. So when Mordechai tells Esther, I want you to go to your king, to your husband, Esther understands there's two concepts here. I have to go to my husband because we're in exile and we do everything according to natural circumstances. So I have to plead with Achashvedesh. But before that, Esther says, we have to do one more thing. Leich knoises kola yehudim hanem Esther now is going to replicate what happened in the first chapter of the Megillah, the exact same experience. Over there, Achashverish summoned all the Jews on Amtsayim B'Shushan. Here's the same on Amtsayim. The party was for all the people in Shushan, including, including the Jews. Esther says, now you have to do what Achashverish did. You have to gather all the Jews on Amtsayim And the focus is on Amtsayim. In Parshas Vayera, here's the third copy-paste. In Parshas Vayera, we have the same words. The angels came to visit Leutensdaim. And they told him, Take your two daughters, The two of your daughters who are present in the city. Just say the two daughters in the city. So the Medrash says, Hanim Tzoyiz, God was saying, I have two metzias with these girls. Rus One of the daughters of Lot would be the grandmother of Rus, who will be the great-grandmother of David and Shloim and ultimately Mashiach. The other woman, the other daughter of Lot, will be the progenitor, the mother, the matriarch of the Ammonite nation. And ultimately the descendant of her will be Nama, who will be from Shloim HaMelech, will marry Shloim HaMelech and become again part of the dynasty of Malchus Beis David till Mashiach. They're not just found. 
very like you'll say, a metziah. I found a metziah. What's a metziah? Metziah means something that's a treasure. It was hidden. I found it. Matsosi David Avdi. Matsosi David Avdi. I found David, my servant. The Apostle says, don't ask the Medrash. You found David what he was lost? So the Medrash says, Heichan Matsosiv Bizdoim. I found David Hamelechin's doim. What do you mean you found David Hamelechin's doim? Zdoim was the epitome of corruption. A metziah is something that's hidden. That's why it has to be found. If it's not hidden, you don't have to find it. If your keys are in front of you, you don't have to look for them. You don't have to find them. If your keys are lost, you say, ah, I found them. Where do you look for something? Where it got lost. They say there was a Jew of Chelem. And he was going home. And he was standing under a lantern and looking for something. Somebody said, what are you looking for? He said, I lost my keys. He said, where did you lose your keys? He said, a few blocks from here. He said, so why are you looking? He says, because here there's light. It's very easy to look for things where there's light. That's not where you have to look for it. You have to look where there's darkness. You have to look where it got lost. Where does he find David Amalek? He finds him Bizdoim. Who looks for David in Zdoim? In Zdoim, there's no room for David. Zdoim is a place of destruction. He says, no, no, no. There's a treasure here that's hidden. We have to find the treasure. In these two girls of, of light, you have the seeds of the, the, the potential of Rus and Nama. In other words, these two girls of light, even though they intermarried, they married Zdoimite men. Or they were engaged to them. But nonetheless, they are two metzias, nimtsois, And therefore, they have to be rescued. And ultimately, they were rescued. David HaMelech emerges. Without that, David wouldn't be in the world. Shlomo wouldn't be in the world. Mashiach could, could not come to the Jewish people. Why? Because this is a metziah in Zdoim. Nobody ever knows where they could find the greatest light. Nobody ever knows where the light of David HaMelech, of Rus, of Nam, of Mashiach is. Sometimes you'll find it in the most unexpected places and in the most unexpected people and in the most unexpected situations and in the most unexpected circumstances. That's why it's called a Metziah. So what happens now? What happens now is something in which the story takes on a transformation of a different type. The Gemara says in Meseches Yuma, this Tzvasema says, Reish Lakish said, Tshuva has a power when you do it out of love, that's doinois nasu like his Sins are transformed into mitzvahs. When a person does tshuva, it's not just they're forgiven for their sin. Zdoinois, Yuma, page 86. Zdoinois, their willing transgressions, nasu like Kazachias, they become for this person like mitzvahs. It's not just, I do tshuva, I'm forgiven. No, the sin itself is transformed into a mitzvah. They say, Levi Yitzchak of Barditchev once saw a Jew eating on Yom Kippur. He said, ah, I'm jealous of you. He said, of course, you're hungry. He said, that's not why I'm jealous. He says, why are you jealous? He says, if you do tshuva, you're going to have so many more mitzvahs than I'll ever be able to have. So this Jew was pretty cynical. He says, Rebbe, come back next year, you'll be more jealous. <laughs> but at the end, they say that Rebbe Yitzhak Baditshev turned him into a baltshuva. Now, this doesn't seem to make sense. A tzaddik who never sinned could only do 613 mitzvahs. The baltshuva who sinned and may have sinned his or her entire life and may have committed every sin in the book and now they do tshuva out of love. Now every Aveda suddenly is a mitzvah. 
The marshal screams, Lo It's not fair. I never broke the rules. I only have mitzvahs. This person broke all the rules and suddenly every sin is a mitzvah. They ate pork, a mitzvah. <laughs> a mitzvah. They violated this mitzvah, this aveda. It's all mitzvahs. What's the meaning of this? It's a sin or it's a mitzvah. You did shuva, fine, I forgive you. We can now have a good relationship. Let's think about this practically. Somebody hurt you, and then they apologize. You'll forgive them. They say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, I really feel horrible. It was a bad thing, I'm so sorry, I want to apologize. The right and noble thing to do is, somebody asks you forgiveness, to forgive them. It says, Never be so stubborn that you don't forgive. You have to be able to forgive. Somebody asks you forgiveness, they're regretting, they're remorseful, you have to be able to forgive. Sometimes it's hard, the Torah doesn't obligate you to forgive because sometimes it's very difficult to forgive. But it encourages a person to try to do everything you can to forgive sincerely. Sometimes it's a process, it's not so simple to forgive always. But if somebody is asking, I have to try and muster my strength to be able to forgive. How to do it as a separate shi'ir, how to be able to forgive. It's a good topic, but it's not for now. So I forgive you. You insulted me, you hurt me, you did something to me, I forgive you. But that means that the insult becomes a mitzvah. Come on. I rob you blindly. Ten years later, I have remorse. I give you back the money, I apologize. So now the theft becomes a mitzvah? What's the seichel? It doesn't make sense. I understand from now on we're good. We mended it. You learned your lesson. That's not what the Gemara says. Reish Lakish, who was a baltruva. He was a baltruva. The Gemara says he was a gladiator, a gangster. He became a baltruva. Brother-in-law of Rabbi Yochanan. He says all your sins, die nice, are transformed into zachias. Into mitzvahs. One of the explanations in this is very, very, it's very powerful and moving. This, he says clearly, this is only tshuva out of love, not tshuva out of fear. Tshuva out of fear, there's forgiveness, but not transformation. Tshuva out of love creates transformation. And the reason is, because when somebody does tshuva out of love, what happens now is, all of their negative actions, their, my mistakes, my errors, my blunders, all become catalysts and springboards that create a much deeper love and a much deeper appreciation and a much deeper relationship. Just like somebody who fell ill, when they recover, they appreciate health in a different way. And somebody who hasn't had a drink for two or three days in a parched desert, and somebody gives you a cup of cold water or even not cold water, the way you drink that water is with such zest and with such passion and with such gusto that a person who was never thirsty can't appreciate it. And somebody who hasn't slept in two or three nights or some of you 17 years or 25 years. And finally, finally when all the kids get married and the Eneklach are away for a few months and you get a night of sleep, eight hours or even seven hours uninterrupted, nobody can appreciate the sweet delicacy of a good normal night's sleep by somebody who was deprived from it. So the deprivation itself gives a whole new appreciation. That's the concept that sometimes when I have broken the relationship and when I have made so many mistakes and then I rediscover the love and I rediscover the value of the relationship, suddenly what happens is retroactively the negativity, the mistakes become 
they become, what's the word I'm used looking for? Stepping stones, very good. They become a stepping stone, or I'll say again, a springboard or a catalyst, or the foundation upon which the relationship is built, and they fuel, they give it more, more oomph, more depth. Sometimes, it doesn't always happen, unfortunately, but sometimes I've seen it with quite a few individuals who have destroyed their lives through addiction. And they ended up in the abyss. They sometimes destroy themselves and people around them, and sometimes in very powerful ways. And the journey afterwards is a hellish journey because they have to face everything inside in order to be able to recover. And as they say in the world of recovery, addiction is not the problem. Addiction is the solution. Which means don't focus on the addiction as much as you have to focus on what caused the addiction. The addiction for this person was the solution. They were running away from something. There was something so painful and unbearable in their lives that for them addiction is the solution. When I target addiction as the enemy, I'm often missing the bar, I'm missing the target. Addiction is not the problem, addiction is the solution. Can you figure out what the problem is? But that requires a much deeper journey. Because now I have to ask myself, what were the toxins? What was the toxicity that this person was absorbing that led them down that path? What did they not get? What was not given to them? Or what did they not receive? Or what went wrong? Not about the blame game or judgment, but about awareness. Addiction is not the problem. This is his solution. This is where he's running for some relief, dysfunctional relief. But relief in his own delusional mind, it's relief. Don't focus on the relief, focus on the problem. When a person goes through that journey and sobers up and recreates their life, you will find within them a level of integrity and authenticity that is hard to find with other people. Because the brokenness, the lies, the deception, the falsehood, the dysfunction, now is transformed into a springboard for a complete new level of awareness. But this is a very, very deep journey. Because to get to that place where this doinus become like Zachiyos, the person has to have the courage to be able to say goodbye to their past. And then, ultimately, they can redefine their past into a springboard of a new awareness. And now, every time they made a mistake, that mistake, in a very paradoxical way, becomes a positive act. How? Because that very mistake, that downfall, is what created an awareness and a depth that they could have never had without it. The fact that I destroyed myself through that, my appreciation of truth, my appreciation of my soul, my appreciation of MS, my appreciation of Hashem, is in a way that another person who's been a straight shooter, thank God, their whole life can simply not have. Not because they're bad, he's a tzaddik. But the Balchuva basically is the one who finds Matsasi David Avdi Bizdoim. He can go back to Zdoim and find the spark of goodness that existed in the sin. 
or to put it in different ways, a little more abstract, maybe a little more deep. And that is, everything in the world has divine sparks. Everything. Everything that exists is here because Hashem wanted it to be here, which means it has divine energy, which means God's will is in it, which means there's a divine purpose in it. Many things, we fulfill the purpose by rejecting it. I see something in front of me, this is not for me, I have to say no. The person who doesn't say no, the person who says yeah, now took it into their system. But this is something where you have to reject it. You cannot reveal the divine purpose in it. It's not for you, you have to say no. But I already did it, I violated it. Now it's in me. When I do tshuva, what happens? This becomes transformed into a mitzvah, meaning I extract the divine sparks that exist in it. And by extracting the divine sparks, now this itself becomes part of the divine will. I fulfill the purpose for which this was created, to be able to be transformed from negative into positive. That's what Reish Lakish means, the sin itself becomes a mitzvah. How can the sin become a mitzvah? It was a sin. It goes so far, if you think about it, I'll ask you this question. Every mitzvah has a preparation. Every mitzvah, you can't do a mitzvah without preparing. You want to have a Shabbos meal? You have to prepare on Friday, Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, some on Monday. You want to blow shofar and Rosh Hashanah, you have to get a ram's horn. You can't have a shofar in a vacuum. You want to eat in a sukkah on sukkahs, you have to build a sukkah and get schach and build walls. You want to eat matzah on Pesach, you have to, somebody has to bake the matzah. You need flour and water and ovens and bakeries, etc. The same is true with putting on tefillin or lighting Shabbos candles or baking challah. Somebody has to buy the flour, knead the flour, make the challah. You can't do a mitzvah without preparation. No mitzvah in the world can be done without heksha mitzvah. The preparation, the prelude, the prerequisite for the mitzvah. You want to make a bris, somebody has to fashion a knife. There has to be preparation for everything. There's a mitzvah called tshuva. Repentance. Return. What's the heksha mitzvah? What's the preparation necessary to be able to do tshuva? Sin. But how can you say that sin is a heksha mitzvah? It's the opposite of a mitzvah. It's not like building a sukkah. How can I say that I'm sinning and I'm preparing for a mitzvah? And the answer is it's not a heksha mitzvah. It's a sin. It's the opposite of a mitzvah. Till I do tshuva. Once I do tshuva out of love, retroactively, the sin is redefined from a sin into a heksha mitzvah. The sin is redefined from a sin into the preparation for a mitzvah. When I did the sin, it was a sin. But when I do the tshuva for the sin out of love, now I go back in time. And in quantum physics, you can always go back in time. And therefore... When you're dealing with that which is beyond time, you can go back in time. I go back in time, and I redefine the sin. From a sin, what is it? It's now a new concept. It's a new reality. What is it? It's a heksha mitzvah. It's the prerequisite that allowed me to do tshuva. I wouldn't be able to do tshuva without the sin. I wouldn't be able to re-embrace you with such passion if I wasn't alienated, if I didn't know the other side, I would never be able to believe and cling to truth so deeply if I don't know what it is to live a life of lies and falsehood. But sadly, 
you never choose this path. Because many an addict never gets here. You just remain, you could remain in the negativity. But when somebody could transform themselves to a place of tshuva, it redefines the past. This is not something that you tell somebody to do. You don't say, get sick so you can appreciate health. Starve for three days so you can appreciate food. Don't sleep. Destroy your life so you can rebuild it with more gusto. You never do such a thing. This is not the rule. It's not how you do it. We don't say, I'll sin and I'll do tshuva and the sin will become part of tshuva. You don't do it. You don't. But if somebody sinned, if somebody didn't listen, they sinned, and now they do tshuva, they have the power to retroactively go back and redefine the sin into a mitzvah. And by the way, in parentheses, very swiftly, this is one of the explanations for the paradox between God's knowledge and human choice or God's providence and human choice. If Hashem knows what I'm going to do tomorrow and He's not wrong, so how do I have choices? I don't have choices. He already predicted what I'm going to do tomorrow unless He doesn't know, but He does know. So if He knows, how do I have choices? And if He's in charge of everything, how do I have any choices? And one of the explanations, and I'm not going to explain it, is that there are two parallel universes. There's the universe of God's knowledge and God's providence. There's the universe of human choices. So from my perspective, I choose what I do. From God's perspective, He chooses what I do. Now I finish doing what I do. When I do tshuva, what happens? I create a synthesis. I create a connection between my universe and God's universe. And it comes out that the sin was not my doing, but the sin was God's doing. In other words, the sin becomes a mitzvah because it brought me to tshuva. So the two worlds now collide. Or they continue drifting away and they separate. Tshuva is the choice to be able to connect my universe with God's universe. When I connect my universe with God's universe, so then my mistakes become, so to speak, part of the divine plan. If they're part of the divine plan, it means they're positive. What's the positivity in it from God's perspective? That it brought me to tshuva. When I did it, it was a sin. When I do tshuva, I bring back my choices to God's choices, so it was God's plan. If it was God's plan, then it means it was a good thing. What was the good thing? The good thing was that it brought me to Tshuva. One second. The Rebbe once said, this is very, very deep. He said, what's the ultimate Tshuva? What's the ultimate Tshuva? He says, the ultimate Tshuva is to realize that you don't have to do Tshuva. But in order to realize that, you first have to do very serious tshuva. The ultimate, ultimate tshuva is to realize that all the pain, all the mistakes, all the errors, all the stumbling blocks, all my failures were really an opportunity. They were all there to create a new awareness, even a painful one. That's the ultimate. In other words, the ultimate of tshuva is to realize that I don't have to do tshuva. This is exactly what had to happen. But in order to get there, I first have to do very serious tshuva. Because if you skip step one and you jump to step two, you're out for lunch. Now you actually need to do tshuva. Then you're just completely... That's why these thoughts are very, very sensitive thoughts because if you skip step one and you go to step two, 
Oh, I don't, all mistakes are good, it's wonderful. If there's no pain, if there's no regret, if there's no remorse, I'll never ever be able to reach the second stage. I will remain stuck even more in the pain. I have to be able to acknowledge the pain and the mistake and the trauma and to be able to cry, be able to sob, to then be able to face it once again and extricate the true divine spark in it. That's Doinus Nasalakazachias. Mashiach, the Zoyar says, is going to turn Sadikim into Balitruva. Reveals the Zdoim. David Amalekh you find in Zdoim. The Metziah comes from Zdoim. Nimtsayas. Comes Esther to Mordechai and says, Let me tell you what we have to do. It's not just we have to go tell the Jews, let's do Tshuva. No. The sin has to be transformed into a mitzvah. We have to replicate the party of Achashverosh. The party of Achashverosh has to become the greatest moment of growth for the Jewish people. That's why she uses the same word, Hanim Tzoyim and Hanim Tzoyim. What's the word? It's the Gzeirah of the Shushan party and the Shushan gathering. And it's the words of Sdoim. Hanim Tzoyim, we're going to find the Metziah, we're going to find the true spark. Leich Knois Eskola They ran to Bachashvedish's palace, now they're going to run again. Knois, they're all going to come together. Hanim Tzoyim B'Shushan. And the same energy the same sense of pride and unity and camaraderie and dignity and joy and connection that they felt then finally after thousands of years we were accepted. They were taking photo apps with Achashverosh and Vashti and Haman and tweeting and whatsapping. After all these years, finally we have been placed on the front page of the Shushan Times. At last CNN of Shushan has accepted the Jewish people. Finally, we are normal. We have been integrated. We made it. We made it. There's no stigma anymore. Jews are not different. The great delusion of the Jewish people over the years when they thought that assimilation is going to cancel their identity and all anti-Semitism will vanish for eternity. That same pride, Esther says, Leich Knois. But instead of eating the tray for food of Achashvedish, Tzumu Olai, we're going to fast. And I will also fast. Uvechein, Avoy el Hamelech asher loy chados. Says the Gemara, whenever it says Hamelech, in the Megillah it refers not only to the Persian king, but it mainly refers to the king. What's Avoy el Hamelech asher loy chados? I will come to the king, to Hashem, not according to the rules. According to the Das, there's an Avera and there's a Mitzvah. A sin is bad and a Mitzvah is good. But this time, we will come to the king, we will come to the king not through the regular religion, not through the regular path of Torah. This is going to be the path of tshuva, of transformation, where the very sin becomes a mitzvah. That's not das. That's not religion. That's not the law. If you follow religion, this is bad, this is good. You don't get up and say, I'll sin, I'll do tshuva tomorrow. This is good, this is bad. That's called das. Das means structure. A religion in Hebrew is called das. Das Yisrael. It's called the religion of Israel. I'm going to come to the king not according to the das. Not according to the structure of Yiddishkeit. Why? Because we're going to take the very transgression, the very downfall, the very sin, the very energy 
that was invested in all of those addictions and all of those mistakes. There was an energy there. Hanim Tzayim, we're going to find the Metziah in Zdayim. Take that energy and redirect it. Harness it. So that the same passion that you invested in that behavior will now become the greatest catalyst and springboard for a whole new type of awareness. That's how I'm going to enter into the king. And here is what happens. It's at the party. Jews are assimilated. They're alienated. They have become alienated from themselves and their God. They're bowing to the pagan Persian idols. They're eating and enjoying the Suda of the Russia. And what happens? Vashti is gone. Vashti is sent away to prepare the ground for Esther. In the middle of the sin, the miracle is happening. Why? Because when God is looking at the sin, what does he see? He doesn't see the sin. He sees the mitzvah. He sees the transformation. He sees in the Zdoinois, he sees the opportunity for Zachiyas. In other words, when I'm making my mistakes in life, two things are happening at the same time. I'm looking at it, and Hashem is looking at it. I'm looking at it, and now I'm simply drunk. Tomorrow I'll sober up, and I'll say, what a disaster. How stupid, how clueless. Many of us sitting in this room or in other rooms look at certain stages and decisions in our life and we have two words. How stupid. How clueless. How out for lunch. And you know what? You may be right. You may be right. I have made mistakes sometimes. Horrible mistakes. Was I guilty? Was I not guilty? Malicious? Inadvertently? Sometimes it makes a difference. Sometimes it doesn't make a difference. But there was somebody else involved. The master of the world. He also saw that mistake. What did he see in that mistake? He saw the opportunity for unprecedented growth and transformation. Every mistake in life has in it the sparks of unprecedented potential for quantum leaps that you couldn't have without it. Because when negative energy is converted into positive energy, it has a momentum and an oomph that positive energy on its own doesn't have. It's the negative energy. When the darkness is transformed into light, the light has a caliber to it, a sweetness to it, a depth to it, and a quality to it that light on its own never has. In, in uh, physics, there's something called black holes. You know about black holes? Black holes are really pockets of insane light. But the, the, the magnetic pull of gravity is so powerful, it doesn't allow any of the light to come out. It pulls all the light into itself. So what happens? It's called black holes. Not because there's no light there, because there's more light there. Something doesn't have so much light and so much force, so the light spreads out, so we get to see it. The black holes have so much light, all the light comes back in because of its crazy force of gravity. And therefore it's black. Really it has the most light. In life, there are black holes. There are stars and there are black holes. Black holes have more light. But they're not visible. So the way Hashem looks at my mistake is what? Right now, your light of Mashiach was born. In your mistake, your David HaMelech was born. Rus was born. Nama was born. Shloima was born. 
Geula was born. Where was it born? In Zdaim. Zdaim? Zdaim? Zdaim has to be destroyed. There's two little treasures in Zdaim. Two little cute daughters of light in Zdaim. Two Metzias. Adorable Metzias that you don't want to neglect. In your Zdaim it's true. You have to look for it. So when I'm making the mistake, from my perspective, it's a Churban. From God's perspective, it's birth. It's the rebirth of a new reality, a new paradigm. Because this very mistake, this very error can bring you to a place of awareness, of clarity, of connection that you couldn't have without it. It's a completely different experience. And when I do tshuva, I basically reveal God's perspective on my mistakes. I align my mistake to His. That's why, how do we confess? When we confess, what do we say? Ashamnu, bagadnu, always in the plural. We sinned, we lied, we betrayed. Let me ask you a question. If I hurt you and I come to apologize, okay? I, let's make an appointment. I come to your house and I'm like, we lied, we stole, we betrayed, we were insane. Get out of my house. What are we? I. The basics of forgiveness, the basics of, of, of remorse is accountability. I, not we. And it's Ayim Kippur, we start singing. We betrayed you, we lied, we scoffed, we stole, we are. Really? Imagine somebody comes to your house, they're doing now a musical. We, we stole from you. Oh, we almost ruined your marriage. We almost ruined your kids. What is this? A Broadway musical? Get out of my house. You don't apologize with musicals. You want to go to a musical? Go to a musical. What are you starting to sing operas here in front of me? By Al Khait, everybody is singing. What are you singing? Is this real or not real? So something very, very deep. Ashamnu is plural. So Rapinchas Karitzer said, open your hearts. He said, Ashamnu, we sinned. Who's we? It's me and Hashem together. There's two. There's two in the Ashamnu. I was involved, but God was also involved. Because everything happens on parallel levels. There was my choice, which was a bad choice. And there was also Hashem's choice, which was a good choice. Because Hashem's choice is a good choice, it means there's always hope. It means that there is a spark of opportunity here. And if I could only have the courage to reveal it, to extricate it, then I can retroactively redefine the Ashamnu into maybe my greatest act, my greatest mitzvah. And that's why you sing. You sing because what the music is telling us is, of course I made mistakes and I have to regret them. And I have to say never again. I'm not going to do this again. But when I really, really do that, I could now discover something I could have never discovered without it. So Esther tells Mardachai, that's what we have to do. Was Esther right? Go back to chapter 1. God executed Vashti in the midst of the sin, in the midst of the corruption. The Jews are bowing to avoid the Zorah. They're eating tarfus. And Hashem is like, 
I have to save my children. Vashti got to go. What's going on? The pshat is what everybody else saw as a sin, as alienation. What did Hashem see it? He saw the pnimius. He saw the nitzots. He saw the ultimate potentiality for transformation, for recreation, for rebirth, for metamorphosis. For what the Gemara says in Brachas 34, where the Baal stands, the tzaddik can't stand. Why? What, what, am I guilty that I'm a tzaddik? <laughs> Just because I'm a good boy, I'm so bad? <laughs> and the answer is, it's not because you're bad. It's because you're doing the right thing. But the Baal goes to a different place. Because negativity is transformed, the is transformed. So do you have to read chapter one of the Megillah? Of course you have to read chapter one of the Megillah. Reb Meir, which means light. Reb Meir who had a Rebbe called Acher. And the Gemara says, how can he learn from Acher? Acher was a heretic. And the Gemara says, Reb Meir knew how to disregard the shell, discard the shell and take out the toich. On Averis Klippa. It's full of klipa. You're not allowed to eat it. You have to throw it out. It's a rotten lettuce infested with worms. But what happens if I eat it? I did a sin. Ah, now I do tshuva out of love. I could now reveal the nitzutz. I could reveal the spark. Because it allowed me to bring me to a place of truva. Now, this shouldn't be misconstrued and saying that the sin is a mitzvah. We're not saying the sin is a mitzvah. The sin is a sin. And you're not allowed to do it. What Reb Shlokish is saying is, when you do tshuva out of love, retroactively, you can transform it into a mitzvah. It becomes now, from a sin, a heksha mitzvah. It became the prerequisite, the springboard, the catalyst, the preparatory work for tshuva. So now when they have to make the celebration, they have to institute Purim, what's the great celebration of Purim? party, a feast. But Esther said to fast for three days. But what was the point of the fasting? Not to negate the past, to transform the past. So the same party that they celebrated, the Mishta, became a holy party. How do we know it became a holy party? Look what happened. The greatest miracle happened then. Vashti, who hated Jews as much as a and as much as Haman. The Gemara describes how she used to torture Jewish girls, Vashti was removed in the middle of that party. Because it was a Hashvedish's party on one level. It was also God's party on another level. A says the Mechiriayin is Acharis Vereshis Shaloi. The word Achashvedish is three words. The end and the beginning belong to him. Achashvedish, Acharis Vereshis Shaloi. The beginning and the end are his. What does it mean the beginning and the end are his? He's beyond time. If he's beyond time, there's nothing that's hopeless. There's nothing, you can't say it's spilled milk. I did it five years ago and I was stupid and therefore it's over. You're only stupid if you live within the framework of time. But if you live in the framework of Acharis, Vereshis, Shaloi, the beginning and the end are his. So then I can retroactively from the end go back into the beginning because it transcends time and redefine the past. And what happens? The past suddenly becomes a positive thing. So now you're looking at your own life and saying, Rabbi, why am I all nice? But if you would know about my life, you would never give this shear. If you would know about my choices, if you know what I did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 5 years ago, yesterday, this morning. And the truth is, this doesn't take away 
from the sadness and the pain of a person becoming aware of mistakes that I have done consciously or unconsciously, willingly or inadvertently at all. What it means is that now I have a choice. And the choice I have right now is I could wallow in the quagmire of despair. You got that, women? I can wallow in the quagmire of despair, resignation. I can do that and feel guilty and say, Ashamti, Ashamti, Ashamti. Says Yiddishkeit, Chas V'Sholem, Ashamnu. Bring God into the picture. Don't become a selfish saint. It's all about me. I'm a Russia. I'm guilty. I was such a bad mother, such a bad this. It sounds holy. It's not holy. It comes from the Yetzirah. Sahara. I'm horrible, I'm evil, that's not holy. Vaharayat brings only depression and sadness and further alienation from your loved ones. The proper approach is Ashamnu. I made mistakes, I was ignorant, maybe I was trapped, maybe I was traumatized, maybe I was dumb, maybe I was ignorant. I'm still making mistakes. <laughs> Every day we make mistakes. But now I have to ask one question. What now? What's my opportunity now? What the awareness that I have today to be able to create a new reality, to create a new birth. And what often happens is you see the opportunity, maybe not always to go back and literally fix everything, but to be able to create a new light and a new depth that comes only from tshuva, only from remorse. This is You come to the king through, not through the cotton beaten track. This is not the beaten track. This is loy kados. You come through winding, crooked pathways. Shlaim Ibn Gabiril sings in one of his poems, he says, I run away from God to God. A Jew never runs away from Hashem. When a Jew runs away from Hashem, he's only creating a different path. In other words, we always are on a path to God. There's only two types of paths. One is the cotton, the... the, the not narrow, it's broad, we have to make it narrow. It could be, it could be broad. Kvish mispar echad, right? Kvish mispar echad, as you Israelis love saying. Mispar echad. The kvish that takes you to echad. Takes you to one. Echad mi yodeya. That's one kvish in life. And then there are roads that take you everywhere else. They take you to this mishagaz and that mishagaz. And this issue and that issue. And this place and that place. And it looks like you're going away. You're not going away. So why is Hashem allowing you to go on this road? Because your shlichus is to carve out a new path to Hashem. That's what the Holy Rujana said. He said also very, very deep. He said when a Jew sins, on one level it's a sin. On another level he's carving out a new path to Hashem. A path that was never carved out before. Because this is not a path where you find God. It's a path where you run away from God. But what he's really doing, what she's really doing is they're carving out a new unpaved territory, untouched territory, a new path. The Torah compares marriage and leaving. So Reb Tzaddik says by a Jew, when he leaves, it's like he's coming close. He's just preparing for himself or herself a new path. That's called loikados, not the beaten track. A completely different track, which seems like not a track. Esther Hamalka says to Mordechai, I'm going to go to the king, but first you have to transform. Leich Knois. That energy has to be transformed. A new awareness from that very kinos, from that very mishto v'achashveresh, hanim tzoyim, we're going to make a new kinos. 
So now when we have to celebrate Purim, of course we choose the Mishnah. The party. That's the Nez. The Zdoinus, Nasalakazachias. When you have to read the Megillah, you're going to skip the first chapter. It's all about the first chapter. It's all about the party of Achashverish. And it's all about what happened then with Vashti. That's the key of the story. Comes Rava, Omar Rava. Omar Rava, and we know what Darizal says that Rava, excuse me, <coughs> that Rava was a Nitzutz from light. Rava was a spark from light who was in Zdoin. Omar Rava, Chayav Inish Lebesume Bepuria. A person has to become inebriated on Purim. Until you don't know the difference between cursed is Haman and Baruch Mardachai. So we remember all of our questions at the beginning of the class. Now it becomes clear. What's the purpose of Das? The purpose of Das is Havdallah. Lahavdil beina koidish beina choil beina tomay beina toyer, the Pasik says. Havdallah is to separate. What do we say in Havdallah? The seven Havdolahs separate between good and bad, light and darkness. Shabbos and Choyl, that's what Havdolah is, that's what Das is. That's what Das is. Haman mina Torah minayin, the Gemara says. What's the source of Haman in Torah? Strange question, you know what the answer is? Hashem tells Adam after he eats from the tree, Hamin, Hamin, from this tree that I told you not to eat, you ate? Hamin, from, is the same letter as like Haman. What a strange connection. Have you eaten from this tree, Haman? Haman is Eitz Hadas. Eitz Hadas. Hamin So what's Purim? Adeloyada. You have to go beyond Das. What does this mean? Eitz Hadas is the tree of awareness. Toiv and Ra. What's wrong? It's very good to be aware of Toiv and Ra. Eitz Hadas presents the tree of polarity. There is good and there is evil. What that, does that mean? There are moments that I feel God is with me and there are moments that I feel alienated. Why do most people have to go to sin? I feel empty. I feel numb. I feel detached. I feel empty. I feel sad. Why do we binge? Why do I binge? I shouldn't say we. Why do some of us binge? Why? You ever heard of that concept? Why? Nutritious qualities? No. I'm trying to run away from pressure, pain, stress, whatever. Why does anybody do anything that's unhealthy, unproductive on any level? There's an emptiness in me. I don't feel the intimacy. I don't feel loved unconditionally. I don't feel embraced right now. In the bosom, by the bosom, by the arms of infinity. I don't feel like I'm in the lap of infinity. I have to choose. This is the world of choice. What happens on Purim? You feast on Purim. And when you feast on Purim, what happens? You look at your life, and you can always say there's two parts to your life. There are things that you look at your life and you say, that was a cursed day. That was a blessed day. That was a cursed choice. That was a blessed choice. That was a beautiful time. That was a horrible time. When this happened to me when I was seven years old, it was the day that curse came into my life. And when this happened when I was 19, it's the day that curse came into my life. And when this happened when I was 31, it's the day that my life was cursed. And when this happened, it's the day that my life was blessed. And that's how we often think of life. 
There are the moments that were cursed, God forbid, and the moments that are blessed. The moments that belong to Haman and the moments that belong to Mardachah. That's all till you come to Purim. Once you come to Purim, you go beyond the polarities of Das. This part of my life was bad. This part of my life is good. On Purim, the Jew can reach the place that Esther introduced Mardachai into that consciousness. I can approach the king from every angle, from every road, from every perspective. Every experience, every encounter, every moment, every choice I made, I can fully embrace. I can look at it. I can drink with it. I can feast with it. I can celebrate with it. Why? Because I can discover the Avayal HaMelech HaShaloi Kados that even in the depth in the depth, in the thicket of what I thought were moments of confusion and uncertainty and sometimes pain and darkness, what was really there in the core of cores was the full unconditional loving embrace of my truth, of my God, of my soul. Have a wonderful week. Um, something, how does a person know if it's from, like by Shuta, the sin, Shem Pushtim, or because us. I'm never allowed to choose a sin, ever. Of course not. A Jew doesn't choose no, a sin. If I made a mistake and I sin, now I have to do Truva. Of course. So. You always have to do Truva. It can't just. I wanted to ask you the relationship between the word mitzvah and nimtzaim. Oh, very good. Oh. Mitzvah, you're saying, is also Motsri. So, so, but I, I'm thinking that the word nimtzaim, together with the Ashamnu, if once you reach the level of nimtaim, it's plural of mitzvah, of mitzvah. Very nice. We're doing the mitzvah together. Beautiful. Too. Yeah, of course. That we're doing the mitzvah we're together. We're doing the Amir together. We're doing the mitzvah together. Of course. Thank you. Very much. Thank you. It was incredible. I just Thank have you. one question. So, so, but at the Suda of Esther, really, they were coming from the Gezerah. It was really, it was, yeah. that's what I'm questioning. It wasn't Shuva Meira rather than Shuva Meirah. That's my question. Like, you're saying that Shuva has to be Meirah. So the truth is that you're saying it was Shuva Meirah, not Shuva Meirah. But the truth is that it was Shuva Meirah. And the reason is, it says in Torah Ur, that, uh, it says in Torah Ur, and in other svarim, that Haman's gazero is only on Jews. And if any Jew would have left his Judaism, he could have been saved, unlike Hitler. And nonetheless, they had a whole year, and they chose, they chose to cling to their Jewishness. So this wasn't just fear not to get hurt. It was a love, a love. That's why the Gemara says in Shabbos that they re-experienced Matan Torah, but on a deeper level. By Matan Torah, Hashem put a mountain over their heads. So you right, could say it was right, forced. Right. Purim, says Kimu Vikiblu. They affirmed it willingly. It was with passion, with love. It was Shuvah Me'ava. And that's why Zdoyna is not like Kazachis. So the very sins were transformed into mitzvahs. The very feast by Achashvedish became the greatest mitzvah, the greatest opportunity for a relationship. Fashtandik? Yavaldik. About energy. So, um, if I, in my open heart, yes, heart, I've forgiven certain situations. So, I, uh, talking about energy, if I, for, if I forgive something that happened 60 years, 50 years ago to one of my children, but they are in a place unwilling to If I hurt somebody, I have to apologize. I can't come and say, if I could, I can't come and say, if I hurt you, if I insulted you, I did something to somebody, 
I heard a child, I heard a parent, a sibling, a stranger, anybody. I can't come and say, oh, this tshuva, God forgives me, it's an opportunity for mitzvah. The Mishnah says, Hashem can't forgive me until I don't ask forgiveness. So whenever I have an opportunity, I have to make amends. If I owe somebody money, I have to pay them, I have to compensate, I have to ask forgiveness. Sometimes I have to plead for forgiveness and do whatever I can. And it's a pain. I have to be aware of the hurt. I have to be aware acutely of what I cause because if I'm not... I'm not being sincere, I'm just being detached and I'm using mystical concepts in a fake way. And all of this can be misconstrued. If somebody is not a sincere person, they can misconstrue it. I mean, the ideas that we discussed here are discussed, you know, in the, the works of Reb Tzadik HaKoyen and in Kisvei HaRizal and the works of the Balatanya and a lot of the works of Kabbalah and Machshove and Chesidah, the works of the Maharal. But if somebody is not sincere... They can misconstrue it. They can say, oh, everything is a mitzvah, God is everywhere. And that's, that's very dangerous. No. This is a good and this is bad. And if I did something bad and destructive, I have to make amends and apologize and take accountability. And leave nishba v'nitken, have to be humble to the best of my ability. Okay. To the best. Yeah. Now, the question is, but now where do I go from here? So now my focus has to be tikkun, to fix, to rebuild, to rehabilitate. And to remember that Hashem was with me. And there's a concept, that even in the greatest darkness, there's light. And therefore, somehow, may not understand how, but somehow I have to be able to have the courage to, to create light and to try to create relationships that are better. And maybe some things, a person says, I don't want to have to do with you anymore. I don't want to be connected to you. And you know what? It hurts so much. But my approach has to be, I'm not going to give up on the relationship. I'm going to try again. I'll write a letter. I'll send a gift. I'll reach out. I'm going to plant seeds of light and connection to the best of my ability. And yes, sometimes I look back and I say, I wish I would have been smarter. I wish I would have gone for help. I wish I would have not ended up here. I wish. Listen, every single one of us can look back at our life. I could look back at my life. And see mistakes that I made, bad mistakes that I made, terrible mistakes. Did I have the tools to, to do other things otherwise? Sometimes, yeah, maybe, sometimes not. Maybe I didn't have the tools. I probably didn't have the tools. You probably didn't have the tools. I, I, I functioned to the best of my ability. Maybe we were all busy surviving. That's a fact, yeah. The question is now, I have to look right now and ask, okay, was there any light there or it's all darkness? And that's the whole idea of Adalayada. We can reach a state that a Jew goes beyond the polarities of eight Sadas, Toivirah, and realize that even in Arur Haman, I could find Enoid Mulvada, Enoid Mulvada. The black hole, yeah. yeah. It's so much like that. Yeah. They don't let it. You understood? <laughs> or Adeloyada? No, I understood. You understand why Purim is deeper than Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur, Wait, you didn't come back to that. You that's didn't come true. back to that. I was waiting for that also. So right? Yom Kippur so is a day of tshuva. Right. But how do you do tshuva on Yom Kippur? You ask for forgiveness. Right. You focus on the sin and forgiveness. And then this Purim is even deeper. Because you understand that the sin You understand that the sin the itself mitzvah. is part of the mitzvah. Yeah, Listen, you know it's not always... Like I'm I saying, but it's, not, it's, it's like important. I spoke about sin. Yeah. It's not always about sin or mistakes. 
Sometimes it's just challenges. People suffer from terrible challenges. It's not completely not their choice. Mental no, illness. It makes you stronger, but on the other hand, it's terrible. You wouldn't have chosen that as a trait. You never choose. Right. You don't choose. Right. You don't choose any, don't choose any darkness. You don't choose these things. Never. You don't choose. I'm going to sin and then do. I'm going to become sick and appreciate my health. I'm going to jump off a cliff and stay alive. You don't do that. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.